0: The Eric Metaxas Show with your host, Eric Metaxas.
1: Hey there, folks. I get to talk to my friend, Dr. Michael Gillen, about science and faith. And you get to listen in. I promise you, uh, well, first of all, let me say, Michael Gillen, welcome to the program. You've been a friend for a long time. You've been a scientist for way longer. Uh, (laughs) Your new book (laughs) is titled Believing is Seeing. A physicist, that's you, explains how science shattered his atheism and revealed the necessity of faith. So congratulations on the brand new book. What is the headline in this book? You've written other books. I love talking to you about faith and science and how compatible they are, putting it mildly. What's the, new, what's the news in this one?
0: I think the news is that I, for the first time, I tell the full story, Eric, um, of my journey from atheism to Christianity, and I was dragged into Christianity, kicking and screaming. And the other headline is that uh, for those people who believe that Christianity is somehow anti-science or is completely incompatible with science, I'm living, breathing proof that's not true, because I live quite comfortably in a quite enlightened state being both a scientist and a Christian. So I guess that's the headline. And it's great to be on the show again, my friend. Oh, it's
1: great. It's always fun to see you, because, yes. look, I think truth should be fun. You know, science, faith, all these things, exploring these things, it really can be a lot of fun, and you you get that. Uh, just for my audience's background on, on who you are— uh, t- tell us about being a physicist and then getting to be uh, work with ABC, uh, just so they understand w- where you've been coming from.
0: Well, you know, ever since I was a kid, I dreamed about becoming a scientist, and I was born in East L.A., so that was kind of on the wrong side of the tracks. I had never met a scientist in my life, but there it was. I had this—I just—from the second grade, Eric, I just felt head over heels in love with science, and that dream took me from East L.A. to UCLA to Cornell— and then on to Harvard and beyond. And um, during those years, uh, during that time when I was educating myself as a scientist, um, I didn't believe in God. I didn't even think about God. He wasn't on my radar. I slept about three hours a day. Um, and the rest of the time, I was either holed up in my lab at Cornell, or I was in the classroom studying about the universe. And then uh, just stuff started happening to me that had nothing to do with my dream. And in fact, I I make the distinction between dream and destiny. We can get into that if you want. But really, my dream was just becoming a scientist. So when I got to Harvard teaching physics to kids, I just thought I was on top of the world. I had fulfilled my, my, my heartfelt uh, passion. And I'll tell you one thing quickly because of what you just said. <laughs> when I was teaching there... Um, it was considered a core course at Harvard, and it was an A course. So we had science A courses and science B courses. The science B courses were the soft sciences. The science A courses were like physics and biology, the hard sciences. Wait, what's so soft kids- science? Like phrenology? Yeah. Astrology? <laughs> yeah, among the astrology. American phrenology. studies. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, right. Communications. Psychology, yeah. for example. Okay. Sociology. Those are considered the soft sciences. Yeah, they're not even, they're but not even
1: sciences, you. but thank you. Okay, so go ahead.
0: No, I'm just telling you the story because of what you said about truth being fun. And so most of the kids who took the class were seniors. They just waited till the bitter end to take the class because they needed to in order to graduate. So they'd come to me, you know, all worried with it. Oh, Dr. Gillen, I haven't taken science since high school. I'm so worried about. I said, you know what? First, take a deep breath. We're going to learn a lot, but more than learn a lot about physics and about the universe, we're going to have a lot of fun. And do you know my reward, Eric, was at the end of the semester, so many of them, most of them, nearly all of them, in fact, I can't even think of a single exception, they'd come to me and say, wow, I didn't know physics was this much fun. He said, they said, they, if we'd known that, we would have taken it long before that. So I agree with you. Truth is not only important, but it sh- and not only enlightening, but it's also an awful lot of fun. So I've had a ball being a scientist all these years, more years than I care to admit to. Well, I don't know
1: even if I've told you, but my new book, which is coming out like any day, any week here, it's called Is Atheism Dead? And it's all the first part ah. of it is all about faith and science, and I have been astonished to learn that not only does science point to a creator God dramatically, like yeah. insanely, yeah. but yeah. science comes out of Christian right. faith. You would think in the world we live in that science and faith are enemies. It's exactly the opposite. And we live in this bizarre world. I mean, it's hard for us to realize we live in a world where most of what we know is wrong. You know, like that idea that science, there's science here and there's faith over here. And you think, well, no, truth is truth. They point to each other. Um, But you have lived this. So let's talk about this. What is it in this book, Believing is Seeing? Well, first of all, there's the question. Why is the title
0: Believing is Seeing we usually say seeing is believing. Because when I was an atheist, I lived by the motto, seeing is believing. You know, if I can't see it or taste it or touch it, if I can't acknowledge its presence, if I can't access something with my five senses or with the scientific instruments that enhance my five senses, then I'm not going to believe in it. So it's like the Missouri, you know, the show me state. But then I learned something uh, that really floored me, and I talk about this in the book, and that is, it's one of the really two stunning things that I learned about the universe when I was young, um, becoming a scientist, and that is, uh, we, we now know from our exploration of the universe that most of it is invisible to us. Now, I don't know how dig- deeply you want to dig into this, but if you bear with me for a second, I think you'll find it interesting, and your listeners will, and, and uh, viewers will, too. What do I mean? That there is the observable universe, and then beyond the observable universe, there's an unobservable universe. That's the light from that part of the unobservable universe will never reach us because the universe is expanding at a rate so that the light can never catch up with that expansion and get to us. Okay? So I'm sorry, what? The observable
1: universe. Huh? There- no, what you just huh? said is so heavy, we gotta stop and we gotta we gotta make sure okay. everybody got that. Okay. Light okay. travels, you ready? At the speed of light. Did you guess? Light travels at the speed of light, but the universe right. is expanding. Well, it can't be expanding faster than the speed of light.
0: Well, we believe there if you if you look at inflation now, which is um, under Biden, I, I it's
1: unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Uh. <laughs> OK, I. Uh, this is what I love about you, man. I love you, brother. Uh, you love no, my stupid the, in, interruptions?
1: In, uh, my audience does no, not love them. No, I love them.
0: I love so. – that's what makes you you, and this is what I adore about you and what I, I always love talking to you. Uh, so many other hosts are just, yes, okay, Dr. Dillon. Yes, <laughs> but, you know – no, so when I talk about inflation, I'm talking about the standard cosmological model, which most people know as the Big Bang Theory. Um, uh, we we have amended the big bang theory to include a phase we call inflation right, uh, again right. i talk about it in the book that's that initial uh, moment i mean a fraction of a second we believe in science when the universe went whoosh, like a you know like when you put a balloon in one of those tanks of helium at a carnival yeah. and the guy puts the and and he turns on the valve and he just whoosh, well, we believe that that inflationary period, uh, the universe could have expanded even faster than the speed of light. Okay,
1: now I've not heard that before. I'm really yeah. – I love hearing stuff like this. This is why I love yeah. talking to you. So we believe <laughs> as of what we know now – that the initial phase that's called inflation – and I know because I, I write about the folks who talk about this in, in my new book as Atheism Dead. But I don't – I didn't get into this. So you're saying that there's an initial period of the expansion of the universe after the Big Bang called inflation where it may in fact have expanded even faster than the speed of light.
0: Right, and then that gave way to a period called reheating and it was almost instantaneous and that's what ignited the Big Bang that everybody knows about. But what I'm – without getting too far into the weeds, what I'm, I'm explaining to you is that in astronomy and cosmology, which is one of my specialties, we believe that there is the observable universe, which is quite large. And then beyond that is a segment of the universe that – whose light will never be able to reach us. It's so there. We, we just
1: it. can't see it.
0: And we never will be able to see it. So what I'm saying is that when I learned as a young scientist – that most of the observable universe is invisible. So it's even, it's even in other words, I'm now talking just about the so called observable universe. I learned early on that most of that is invisible. Now, when I was a kid, how, how can that home, be? Well, I'll tell you why. Because are we getting when into dark
1: matter now? What are we talking about? Not My yet. audience I, is wondering, <laughs> you know, they're going to have to pull over the side of the road and soak their heads uh, because this is heavy I, I, stuff, Michael Gillen.
0: Yeah, it is. So, but. Here's the thing. When I was a grad student, they didn't call it dark matter or dark energy. We called it the missing mass problem, which is when we looked at the galaxies, and galaxies were a particular interest of mine. And in fact, I ended up writing my, my thesis on galaxies. But without going into all of that, when we look at galaxies, they spin very slowly like you know, very slow-moving uh, merry-go-rounds. And we can infer from the spin rate how much mass they have. So when we look at how fast the galaxies are spinning, lo and behold, we realize, whoa, wait a minute, they're spinning way faster than they should be. They don't. When we when we calculate the mass of those galaxies, it doesn't jibe with their rotation rate, with their spin rate. So, in other words, they're spinning uh, faster than they should, which implies that they should have more mass than we can see.
1: You know what? So we. Infer- this is way yeah. too deep for me. I'm cutting this off. <laughs> Albin, cut him off. We'll be right back <laughs> with Dr. Michael Gillen.
2: All up
1: there is no cure for. Hey folks! You want to talk about the observable universe? You want to talk about dark matter? You want to talk about the uh, the speed of galaxies as they rotate and how that gives us an idea of how much mass there is, and then. And by the way, if you don't want to talk about this stuff, I apologize, because that's what we're talking about right now with (laughs) Dr. Michael Gillen. The book is Believing is Seeing. So you're saying that we, we meaning you and others, were observing the spin of certain galaxies, and it implied that there was a lot more matter and mass than we could see. And so what did we infer
0: from that observation? So we inferred that there must be something, some substance within that galaxy that is causing it to spin so fast that we can't see. It's an invisible form of stuff. And that's all we called it when I was a grad student. But then as, I, as in the years afterwards, we came to call it dark matter. Uh, so that's what we call the missing mass. That Where is this mass that's causing the galaxies, galaxies to spin so fast? And then beyond that, we discovered that the universe is actually not only expanding, but it's accelerating outwards. That was huge, and I actually covered that when I was at ABC News because a friend of mine at Harvard was involved in that discovery, and we call that dark matter. The bottom line, just just to come back to the point I was making, is that when I learned as a young scientist— that most of the universe is invisible, and we now believe 95% of the observable universe is invisible to us, I could no longer live by the motto, seeing is believing. Because here was science now demanding that I believe in a universe, most of which I could not see. So I had to ditch seeing is believing, and that launched me on a, a very long Herman hess like journey, you know, a tormented intellectual seeking Herman answers to Herman hess like
1: journey. I literally make fun of Herman Hess in the introduction to my new book, Is Atheism Dead? I'm not even joking. I'm going to send you a copy. When we get off the air, I got to send you a copy. But so what you're saying, I really, you know, I want to be serious and let the audience know that science or let's say materialists, people who are scientific, who insist there's no such thing as anything except what we can detect with our five senses, anything beyond the realm of quote-unquote science cannot exist. They make this statement. Now, that is a statement of faith. It's preposterous. But you're telling me, oh, by the way, even science contradicts that idea because you're saying there is a ton of matter. We can infer the existence of it, but we can't see it. And so that right there causes you to think like, well, maybe we're getting some of this wrong.
0: Yeah. And more than that, I mean, we call it dark matter. Honestly, Eric, we don't know if it's matter, if it's a novel kind of matter, or maybe it's something completely different that we've never discovered. Same with dark energy. These are just placeholder names for things that are genuinely a mystery to science. So we call it matter and energy, but it may turn out years from now that we'll discover, hey, It's neither matter or energy, so it's even more profound uh, than even the names imply. But So
1: what you're really saying, though, is you're saying that to some extent science, like anything else, is full of baloney. Like they use terms like (laughs) ether, and then suddenly we realize, oh, by the way, there's no such thing as ether. We we used to call the space, the outer space, we'd say it's loaded up with ether, and then we realize, no, there's no ether. In fact, there's nothing there. Uh, we used to say, what? I mean, protoplasm, you know, we'd say that there's this, yeah. this stuff in the cell, and then you realize, well, no, that we just used that term because we didn't know what else to call it. You're saying that dark matter and dark energy are like that. We have no idea what we're going to discover. It's probably going to have another name when we figure out what it is.
0: Absolutely, and whoever actually discovers what it is, if we ever do, will get a Nobel Prize for sure. But even the people who discovered dark energy, which is causing the universe to accelerate... Even they admit we 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 if you think dark matter is a mystery, we have no clue what dark energy is. I mean, that's just the the, the God's honest truth. Now,
1: do we even know what energy book- is? And I'm not joking. Energy. We all say energy, energy. We don't even know what energy is technically, do we?
0: Correct. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. We don't. We just we give it and we know there are different varieties of energy but there are different but that's like saying there are different varieties of mystery we don't know <laughs> frankly we don't even know when when it comes right now if you really want to get philosophical we don't even know what matter is exactly because what gives matter its inertia what gives matter its gravitational pull we don't know and if you go back into the literature into the history of science there were tremendous debates back and forth between Einstein and others about what is What gives matter its inertia and its gravitational pull? We don't know. So, again, even these fundamental things like space, talk about space and time and matter and energy. I mean these are the four basic things that we believe as scientists the universe is made of. We don't know ultimately what that is. We don't know what time
1: you know, is. People, let's be honest. I mean no, no kidding. No, we, don't. we don't know what it is, but it's in no. all of our equations.
0: Yes, yes. Pretty wild. Exactly, and and, and even when you look at uh, some of the work that Stephen Hawking did uh, towards the end of his life, and, you know, I had the opportunity to get to know Stephen. I was the first correspondent to interview him, flew, him to, flew to England, that's another story. But even if you look at some of the work he did towards the end of his life, he he comes up with a concept of imaginary time. That I mean, here's the bottom line. Here, I'm, you want a headline, Eric? Here's a headline. You would have thought that... As we learn more and more about the universe scientifically we will demystify the universe that the universe will become more rationally understandable in fact just the opposite is happening that sci- as science progresses in its understanding of the universe the more uh, the more mystical really the more mysterious the universe co- becomes because for every answer for every question we answer we give rise to a thousand. This others. is exactly. This so, is
1: the headline, Michael. Because yeah, we're going to yeah. uh, we're going to a break here. This is the headline, and I'm not kidding. That's part of what I write about in my book. Is that the more science discovers, the more horrified scientists are to realize where science is pointing. It's pointing beyond science. This is counterintuitive. This is big stuff. We're talking to Michael Gillen. Don't go away. Folks, we're talking about science, faith, faith, science, also faith and science. I'm talking to Dr. Michael Gillen. The book is Believing is Seeing. So, Mike, if, if people read this book, what are they going to get? Because we're, you and I are talking about some really deep stuff. I know your writing is not like yeah. this. Your writing is accessible, even though <laughs> you're, you're a, you're a <laughs> physicist. You know how to write and you know how to communicate. So this is not a book for eggheads. Um, Believing is Seeing, what are people going to find in the book?
0: I think they're going to find out that uh, there is a conceit among many scientists that somehow science is founded on logic, hardcore logic, and that religion is somehow founded on this squishy marshmallow-like thing called faith, and that faith is somehow something for weak-minded people. Faith is a crutch for people who can't uh, absorb or accept the reality, the harsh, logical reality of the universe. And what they're going to find in this book is that's simply not true. What they're going to find is that faith underlies the entire human experience, both religious and scientific. It underlies physics, it underlies math, it underlies astronomy, it even underlies logic itself. And so I blow that whole misperception in that seat up. Um, the other thing they're going to find out is that Each of us has a worldview, and there are three things about your worldview that matter. Number one, what is it founded on? It's founded on what I call axiomatic beliefs, and I discuss this in the book. Axiomatic beliefs are things we believe in, but that we cannot prove, and that's true even for an atheist. An atheist has certain beliefs they can't prove, but they base their entire worldview on them. Number two is the size of the worldview. How big is it? Is it big enough just to accommodate space, time, matter, and energy? Or do you allow for the possible existence of alternative realities? And the third thing about your worldview that matters is its center. What's at the center of your worldview? When I was younger and I was an atheist, I had a very small worldview because I only believed in space, time, matter, and energy. And my and at the center of my worldview was me and my dream. That's all that mattered to me. And now as a Christian, I have a much larger worldview by, because I now allow for the existence of spiritual realities. And at the center of my worldview is the creator of the universe. And so that, those three things, uh, and there's even a test at the end of the book you can take to evaluate your worldview. So I think that a third thing that people will get from this book is this. I said a moment ago, we all have a worldview, and everybody's worldview, I don't care if you're an atheist, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a Christian, or whatever, your worldview is based on axiomatic beliefs you cannot prove. In other words, you have to accept on faith. But the question is, what kind of faith is it? And I explain in the book there are two kinds, a misguided faith and enlightened faith. So if somebody says to me, or asks, you know, you'll often hear somebody saying, are you a person of faith, Eric? Eric? Stop asking that. We are all people of faith. Right. All our worldviews are based Especially on faith. Especially atheists.
1: And that makes them angry, yes. but it's a fact.
0: And what you have to ask them is, not are you a person of faith? That's a foregone conclusion. Everyone on the planet is a person of faith. The question is, is your faith misguided or enlightened? And explain in the book, what's the difference? And it's a, there's a huge difference. One more thing that I explain in the book, too, is, People who go around touting being logical, it turns out, and I explain this, I have entire chapters on this, logic is the most simple-minded way of reasoning. It's arist- when you talk about logic, most people are talking about what we call two-value crisp logic, which is Aristotelian logic. It turns out to be that is the most childlike, simple-minded way of reasoning. And I talk in the book about translogical reasoning, which is far more profound That allows you to see profound truths in the universe, not just the trivial truths that logic will reveal to you. So there's a lot there. That's very heavy. That is really, really heavy. Because I
1: think of you as a shallow person, and I gotta say, I'm (laughs) I'm really getting a whole different read in this interview. No, listen. After all
0: these years, after all these years, there. (laughs)
1: That's my favorite line. Like deep down, he's really shallow. But seriously, (laughs) you, you, um. This is the joy is because you can communicate these things on a popular level, but this is heavy stuff. And it's what we need to be thinking about because people throw around these terms, logic, faith, reason, you know, and you think, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And what you're yeah. suggesting, um, and it gets – you get to it in the title, believing is seeing, even that enlightenment nonsense that there's this re- – there's, there's, there's reason – and then there's faith. That, that, that itself is a lie. It's preposterous, but you hear it over and over and over again, and atheists seem to say nothing more than, I'm anti-faith, and I'm pro-reason. You think, what? You don't even know what you're saying. You're throwing these terms around, and by the way, you're not. You know, You say you're these things, but in fact, you're not. So we do have to challenge ourselves and other people. So the book is Believing is Seeing a physicist explains how science shattered his atheism and revealed the necessity of faith. Did you get a lot of pushback? You know, as as you're a top physicist, top scientist, when you came to faith, were there people in your life
0: who kind of got a little freaked out by this? Yeah, you know what I conf- and I tell the story in the book as well of when I finally became a Christian, and it took me decades. Um, and and again, I talk about that journey in the book. It's a very personal journey. But I share what I learned along the way. And really, at the end of the day, that's what this book is about. I'm not trying to persuade anybody to believe in any particular way. I'm just sharing what I've learned on this journey. And when I discovered that Christianity is actually more in line with science—now, listen to what I'm saying. And I explain this in detail in the book, and I have matrices and everything to show it. Christianity, the Christian worldview is more in line with the scientific worldview than the atheist worldview is. And that's also what shattered my atheism. Because I always had assumed that atheism went like peanut butter and jelly with science. It's, atheism and science were you know, a matched pair, but actually just the opposite is true. Christianity and the scientific worldview are very consistent with one another. When I got to that point and that realization and realized, wow, you know, if I want to continue being honest, then I've got to become a Christian. And that was um, probably in the 80s. But I held on to that and I remained in the closet, so to speak, until the 90s. And then I confessed my faith in a very unexpected way on ABC News on on One Morning on Good Morning America. Again, we don't have time to get into it now, but I, I confessed my belief. And when I did that, Eric... I froze. You know, you've been in front of the camera many years. You know, when you're talking to a national audience and people had come to know me by then at ABC News, I was doing Good Morning America, 2020, Nightline World News. I froze. I said, what in the world have I just said? I've just torpedoed my career. And literally, I stood up in a daze. And then something weird really happened. All the stagehands, the camera crews, the the gaffers, the prop masters, they all started coming to me and shaking my hand and saying, is... we, we've been watching you all these years. We just thought you were an atheist. because you're Unbelievable. Your has... oh, Michael, we're out of crazy. time.
1: What a great way to end. God bless you, my friend. The book is Believing is Seeing. Congratulations.
2: Yo, man. Yo. Open up, man. Yo, know what you want, man? My constituents just caught me. You let them catch you? I don't know how I let this happen. Wait, where? The place next door, you know? Wait, I thought you ordered all the restaurants to close. Man, I don't know what to do. Just say it wasn't you. All right. Voter came in and they caught me red-handed, eating at the place next door. Were there a lot of people there? Picture this, it was not that vacant, like a hundred peeps or more. How could I? hypocrisy. You don't understand we're not like other creatures not applied to us, we are the leaders Voters can't be trusted to be indoor eaters They are more contagious after all, their mouth-breathers Just tell them it's important to follow all the law How any violation might kill a grandma Why you do what you want, even pardon in-laws Mr. Mayor, how would you prefer your foie gras? Donated Sir, we saw you at a party It wasn't me Eating at the French Laundry It wasn't me You even had the clam chowder It wasn't me Sir, we got you on camera it wasn't me You said we can't be super spreading It wasn't me So I miss my brother's wedding It wasn't me You jailed a barber for hairdressing Wait, I have a wedding This is getting upsetting Border came and they got me red-handed Eating at the place next door
3: <laughs> There is one country that worries me though Not Iraq, not Iran, not North Korea The only country that really worries me Is uh, the country of Germany I don't know if you guys are history buffs or not, but, uh... (laughs) In the early uh, part of the previous century, Germany decided to go to war. And uh, who did they go to war with? The world! (laughs) That had never been tried before. And, uh, so you figure that would take about five seconds for the world to win, but, uh... No, it was actually close. <laughs> then, about then about 30 years pass, and uh, Germany decides again to go to war, and again it chooses as its enemy, the world. <laughs> <laughs> and this time they have that guy crankly, that guy. And, I'm not even going to dignify him by saying his name, but I think you know I'm done. <laughs> but you'd think at that point the world would go, "Listen, Germany, here's the deal: you don't get to be a country no more on account of you keep attacking the world."